0: hey guys welcome to episode number 45 of the rugby strength coach podcast this is keir from rugby strength coach and in today's episode you're going to hear the conversation that i had with tony holler tony is a chemistry teacher and track and field coach at plainfield north high school in illinois in the usa he's the current coach of the fastest 14 year old in america marcellus moore who last year ran a 10.4 in the 100 meters I've been a fan of Tony's writings for the last couple of years. I actually reached out to him last year myself to ask him some questions and and try and solve some problems that I was having with my athletes. And he was extremely generous with his time. Very, very helpful. And the advice really, really helped me in my situation. A major reason that I wanted to speak to him is that context is king. If you look at the numbers that he's producing with his high school kids, these are numbers that most professional clubs would be proud of. Uh, Yet he has none of the budget, none of the time, none of the control over the program that we would expect from a pro club. And not only that, but he's doing it with high school kids. So I think that's even more impressive what he's doing. And for that reason, I wanted to share his thoughts with you in, in this conversation. So over the next hour or so, you're going to listen to how he's evolved as a coach over his 38 years, how he teaches his young athletes to be fast from day one, talking about the idea of sprint football, which is detailed in an article on the Track Football Consortium website. We talk about the relationship between the weight room and speed, talking about mental toughness and combating old school coaching ideas, but also how to make athletes believe in the program. And then lastly, we touch on scheduling lactate work in team sports like football and rugby. In my opinion, this is one of the best episodes I've had the good fortune to record on the podcast. I thought it was awesome. I have a page full of notes from this conversation and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So uh, dive in. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast and you want to check out more information like it, be sure to check out the Rugby Strength Coach Community. This is an exclusive members website that I've created just for coaches, and it offers a unique combination of video lectures, online discussion and career advice that's going to help you to take your coaching career to the next level. Each month, we offer a 60-minute video lecture from a strength and conditioning coach working at the elite or professional level of sport on a topic that is dear to their heart. This is not just the stuff that you get taught that matters when you do your accreditation, your UKSCA or your degree. This is the stuff that keeps elite level coaches up at night that really matters in their job in the real world. We've got presentations from guys that work in the NFL, professional soccer, elite level track and field, uh, the NRL in Australia and New Zealand, international rugby, professional cycling, the list goes on. We have over 30 hours of video lectures and the list is growing all the time and you will get access to all of these when you sign up to become a member of the Rugby Strength Coach community. Not only this, but you're going to get access to the online discussion forum. We have hundreds of members from all over the world working at the very, very top of the game, all the way down to novice coaches. Here, you're going to be able to discuss every strength and conditioning topic under the sun to ask questions and get answers and share resources. Lastly, we also offer a special area of the forum dedicated to career development. Here, you're going to be able to get advice from coaches who have been there, done it, brought the t-shirt and worked at the highest level of the industry. Here, you're going to get advice and all the things you need to do to build the career that you want, including networking, CV writing, interview prep and climbing the ladder. So if that sounds good to you and you'd like to try it out, just go to rugbystrengthcoach.com members and enter the code word trial. This is going to allow you to sign up for 24 hours at the price of just £1. If you like it, keep it and you can sign up to become a regular member. If you don't, just get in contact with us, cancel it. There's no strings attached. If you don't like it and it's not for you, no problem. But for now, sit back and enjoy the podcast. Tony, how's it going? Good, thank you. It's um, well overdue. I think we've been emailing back and forth uh, sporadically for about a year now. And um, I, I sent you an email the other week to to let you know this. And I've literally just published a webinar where I I name drop you. You've been extremely helpful to me over the last year in in managing some of the hamstring issues that we had here. So uh, firstly, thanks very much to you for that. And um, for anyone who's not familiar with you, um, who are you and what do you do?
1: Well, I am a high school chemistry teacher. Uh, I I teach uh, chemistry five times a day to very smart 15 year olds. And then after school, I, uh, I've been a football coach for many years, but this year I stepped out and even though both my sons are still doing it, I, I stepped out and I'm still the head track coach and that's really where my love is. Uh, I was also a basketball coach for about 20 some years. Um, I love all sports. I'm a, I'm a coach's son. My, my father coached basketball for 44 years. Uh, like I said, I have two of my own sons that are in the business. But the thing that I've really gravitated towards is the, the sport of track and field and then, in particular, um, coaching sprinters. And that's really, yeah, I, I basically coach people how to run fast now.
0: What was your background as an athlete growing up?
1: I was, as a coach's kid, I, I grew up thinking that the sports were the central thing in everyone's life. And you woke up and you started thinking about, uh, your next game, your next season, all that stuff. That's what my dad did every day. And my background was that I played football in the fall and and I played basketball in the winter and I played uh, uh, baseball in the summer. And eventually I started running track. Uh, track was my least favorite sport. Matter of fact, I, I hated track uh, in middle school, high school, and college. But I was just good enough that it kept Drawing me back in, where where I, I went out and I was miserable, and our workouts were poorly thought out, and I don't think I got any faster, but I sure ran a lot, and I think that really influenced the way I coach track today, because uh, I would never put people through what people put th- put me through.
0: And and is it safe to say that you kind of. Not not fell into coaching, but it wasn't a a formal aspiration of I want to be an elite level coach. I'm gonna I'm gonna put myself through further education to that end. You you just kind of became a coach.
1: Yeah, I I think deep down I was always meant to be a coach because uh, yeah, I've just you know when you grow up with a dad that that uh, that truly woke up every day excited. Uh, Not many not many grown men wake up every day excited. And I, I think I always had that in the back of my mind, but I always got really good grades. And, and so when people said, what are you going to do someday, I, you know, I just told them I was going to be a doctor. And then uh, you know, I realized in college that there wasn't anything about being a doctor that I would look forward to. Um, and yes, yeah, so yeah, I kind of fell back into coaching as a default situation. Uh, at times, I have I've, I've second-guessed myself because I sure haven't made much money in the profession. But, yeah, yeah, after 36 years, uh, I'm actually three years now past retirement, and I'm still doing uh, what I do because I love it. Uh, I think I'm getting paid about $2.52 an hour now plus health insurance um, because I could quit and make 75% of my salary as as a retired teacher. So uh, I do it now because I love it, and uh, it kind of scares me that I'll have to give it up someday. Well,
0: don't tell them. Otherwise, I'll try and squeeze you down to 250. <laughs> now, reading your stuff, seeing a little bit of what you do and, and the numbers that you pump out and what what you talk about as a coach, it's fair to say that you are very much against the grain of, of what one thinks about when you think about traditional coaching and people that have been in the game as long as you have. So I guess the question is, have you always been this way? And if you weren't, what led you to what you're doing now?
1: Well, that, that, that's a good question. I think, even though I, I considered myself kind of a, uh, a hippie to ten years too late when I was in college, uh, I, I sure thought in, in counterculture type ways. Uh, when when we first start coaching, I think we just default back to the way we were coached. And I look back the probably the first half of my coaching career, probably about seventeen years, I, I coached as a tough, demanding uh nobody's gonna work harder than us type of coach, just like every knucklehead coach out there that still does that. And and then a couple things really happened to me that made me flip a switch. Uh one was I had four of my own kids growing up and and I saw the way sports started to take or, or the coaches started to take the joy of sport away from them. By having ridiculous workouts that did absolutely no good and all that kind of thing. And then uh, another thing happened is I finally met a guy that said that you could have incredible results in track and field without ever running more than 200 meters in practice. And I kind of put those things together and and thought, you know, if I had uh, a program where kids really wanted to come perform for me, we are going to be pretty good, even if we're under-trained. And that's the way I looked at it. Uh, since then, it's been about 19 years of doing the less is more. I call it Feed the Cats, uh, the Feed the Cats program. And uh, I, met, I met Chris Corfist uh, in 2006, and we've been good friends ever since, and we're kind of business partners now. And uh, until I met Chris, I didn't know anybody who was like me, uh, who who – uh ran this lesser less is more type of program and i got great results from it and then i met chris and he was getting great results and then gee it seems like a lot of people are now thinking in the correct ways and it's gone really for me it's gone from being kind of an experiment like i'm going to do this to make track and field really really um uh, uh, attractive to good athletes uh, and thinking that if I have good athletes, we're going to be good. It's gone from there to thinking not only is that true, but it's very true that that my way actually gets kids faster. And when you improve pure speed, everything seems to spin off of that, whether it's explosion, your jumping ability, your ability to run uh, uh, a 400 meter dash, your ability to play football. Pure speed to me is what we should all be after.
0: You know, to me, it's like a, a rising tide raises all boats. Like with the uh, with the maximal speed development, people tend to say in rugby, "our oh, strength feeds everything else." In my experience, not true. Beyond the first couple of years of lifting, not true. And in my experience, it's actually development of pure speed that seems to transfer to all other abilities.
1: I totally, one hundred percent agree with that. I we had a, a guy that spoke at a, our track football consortium uh, last last winter, he was actually the, uh, performance director for Purdue basketball. And, and what I loved about him was he said the exact same thing you just said. He said that when, when you approach repeat speed ability, in other words, run, 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 run with very minimal rest, you will never develop pure speed. And pure speed is the thing that spins off to everything else. Uh, I, I have this argument with people who own weight rooms, and they all want to tell me that their guys get faster by lifting weights, and that's all they do. And they are absolutely wrong. Uh, I, I understand where they're coming from. If I owned a weight room, maybe I would talk that shit too. But 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 I don't own a weight room, and all I'm trying to do is improve kids' performance, and so pure speed becomes it, and so. If people want to know about what I would do with a, uh, with a 16-year-old sprinter or an 18-year-old sprinter, it would be that we're going to chase pure speed all year long until the competitive season, and then we'll get specific. In other words, in the track season, pure speed is not as important as the ability to run 100 meters, 200 meters, 400 meters very fast. So we have to change our idea, though, but our... Entire foundation has been built on speed. We never do any endurance work. We never say the word aerobic. We don't do tempo runs. We don't do uh, any type of uh, get fit type of thing. We are purely after pure speed. And I'm not against the weight room. I think the weight room is a pretty good auxiliary thing for speed, but it's no more than a small component. And anytime you make the weight room, the pure thing, you know, the thing you're chasing. I think you're misguided.
0: Indeed, <laughs> we can touch on that a little bit later because you know I've got a ton of questions here to ask you about if if that approach might be adapted to to rugby. But let's imagine that i I'm, you know I'm a high school kid. I come into your school now on day one. How are you going to make me faster? Well,
1: the, what's, the, what's
0: the process?
1: The, the the process is is first of all I'm going to get you very interested in in getting faster, and, and, and that is where I get this whole thing, feed the cats, uh, that, that I, I, I see sprinters as fast-twitch athletes, and cats are fast-twitch animals. Cats sleep 20 hours a day, and, and then they're pretty fast the rest of the time. And so my sprinters are treated like cats. We do not ever uh, put a leash on one of my sprinters and take them on a six-mile walk or anything. Instead, what we do is run very short distances, we spike up, we sprint, we time people with free lap timing or a stopwatch or whatever, we record, rank, and publish guys constantly. And I truly believe that, that sprinters are not maybe the most fun people to coach. They're very, um, uh, sometimes they, they pay attention, kind of like a cat does, and um, sometimes that's not, not a whole lot of fun. However, sprinters are extremely competitive and so when you start timing them on a near daily basis we sprint about three times a week no more than three times a week do we ever time and if you are timing a kid three times a week and publishing their times and making a big deal out of prs and and that type of thing we are seriously feeding the cats we are feeding their emotions we are getting them excited And then the important thing is they constantly try to break their own records. And when they do that, they start to feel speeds that they've never felt before. They are running faster than they've ever run before. And what's happening is I I believe the speed is totally neurological. And when those synapses learn how to fire at a rate that they've never fired before, that becomes a part of that sprinter. We are what we do. And man, we sprint a lot. So what we would do is basically uh, during the entire off season, we would sprint two or three times a week. And then on our off days, we would either rest or do what we call X factor, which are basically uh, a creative combination of different plyos done in small doses, uh, different explosive things. We do cat jumps, we do depth jumps, we do uh, toe pops that Corpus does, Uh, we do booms that Corpus does. We do leg swings that I invented about 19 years ago. Uh, we do hip mobility. We do all those things as kind of alternative workouts. Of course, we also do wickets. Everybody does wickets, but we do them in uh, like Chris Corfus does. Once again, he's been a huge influence on me, and we do it in all types of uh, uh, all types of different uh, alterations where where we really create a chaotic environment sometimes and make guys sprint through that chaotic environment and. Uh, yeah, it, it gets kind of boring sometimes because that's all we do is sprint and X-Factor and and sleep. We do a lot of rest
0: too. Yeah, well, I, sometimes I say to my guys, the most entertaining thing of all is winning. For sure. <laughs> yeah. For- do, do you find any of that stuff uh, interrupts what you're doing on the high days? Because obviously some people would say lower body intensive plyometrics is, is a high CNS element. You, you'd want to consolidate those onto the same days.
1: Uh, Yes, Uh, but I think we're all kind of uh, boxed in by certain constraints that we have, like, for example, uh, I'm boxed in by the fact that that our entire winter program is in conjunction with our football program, so we have over 100 athletes, and we just work out on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, so – uh, our football coach wants to go home on Friday and gee, going home on Friday after school is a great thing after a long school week. So, so yes, I, I think it would be better to go. If, if it was up to me, we would go three days a week and go Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and that's it. Yeah. And yes, we would consolidate that high neuro stuff on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. But what i found is that, that if you do go four straight days and, and then take Friday, Saturday, Sunday off and get really good rest. Our kids come back fast, faster on Monday. And that's kind of what we're after. Amen. And it might, we were also, you know, I'm also dealing with kids that are 14, 15, 16, 17. Yeah. And, and there is a little bit of difference, uh, with, with those kids and elite athletes. I think, uh, elite athletes, uh, Get uh, suffer from more neurological fatigue than younger athletes. I think younger athletes are a little more uh ad- adaptive to that neurological high, high speed stuff. And or or you could is it might just be the fact that elite sprinters can run so much faster
0: yeah. than teenagers. You know, so to me it's like the uh, the Ferrari versus the Fiat 500. You You can you can floor the Fiat 500 every day. But the Ferrari, once you flood it, you need to get back in the garage and, and tune it up.
1: Yep, I just read something today. I, you know, I've never read anything by uh, Charlie Francis. I, actually, I read first twenty pages of Speed Trap, and I was just interested in the steroids that Ben Johnson did and just story.
0: <laughs> He didn't take any.
1: <laughs> no, no. And, and so anyway, I was reading that Charlie Francis, and he said that it's uh, something I read today that uh, that a PR type of sprint of 100 meters might take 10 days for that elite sprinter to recover from that 100-meter sprint where he sets a PR. You talk about neurological fatigue. I mean, you know, like you say, when you have a car that can go 200 miles an hour, uh, maybe it's a little different than a car that can go 120. So the fact that we go four days a week works for us at the high school level. And, but I think it only works because we have that three day off or, or, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday.
0: When you talk about low volume, give people an idea just how low you mean, because I, I'm sure there are some rugby guys out there. When you say low volume, you think, oh, we're only going to do 10 sprints. Like what, what do you mean by low volume?
1: Well, I, I think uh, I will tell you what I think about low volume in the context of sprinting, like in an offseason workout, and then maybe in more of a rugby football type context. In, in, a, uh, in a sprint workout, people are shocked about our volume. On, on a typical speed day, we will go through maybe 10 speed drills, and those drills are done with max intensity, with me coaching, like I've just had two cups of coffee, and, which I probably have, uh, and, and all those things. But that's when I really teach sprinting, sprinting because you cannot teach sprinting as somebody is traveling at 10 meters per second. It's impossible. Uh, People can't think when they're going that fast. So I coach sprinting during our drill time. And then we will time ourselves in three 40-yard dashes where we run a 40-yard dash. And we'll also time the last 10 meters of that with a free lap system. So I'm actually getting two numbers from every sprint. So they do three of those. The amount of rest, we have about 50 guys. So by the time you run one and then get ready to run another one, it's probably been seven or eight minutes rest. So uh, people always ask, well, then what do you do? And I say, that's it. That's absolutely it. And, and they're shocked. They think that I'm actually holding out, that maybe I do a lot more things because my guys are pretty fast and everything. And, and they say, gee, he must be doing something we don't know about. So I get a lot of visitors who, who just kind of shake their head and say, you were telling the truth. That really is all that you do. And uh, it's kind of embarrassing because our workouts are so short. Our X-Factor workouts go for about 45 minutes maybe, but for every effort that we do of less than five seconds, we have enough rest so that we can repeat what we just did at the exact same speed. If we are not, we are not trying to get tired. We're not trying to uh, 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 get in shape. We're we're, We're not trying to hurt ourselves. We are trying to perform at a high level on each and every rep. And that's the way I teach speed training. Now, low, low volume with a football practice or a rugby practice, since you're, since you're training guys to play in a game that lasts a couple hours or three hours or whatever, obviously you will have to have more volume than what we do. But I still think the biggest mistake in the football, and I would guess in the rugby situation, is that you never get to the very high neurological type of, of, of work because your volume is too high so you know I would see I would say that if your games last three three hours that you should never practice more than an hour and a half uh, there's no way you should practice a full three hours in one day and and get really tired and everything because that ruins the next day's practice and the next day you are basically going to learn how to practice at a low neurological rate your synapses are firing slowly you're, you're constantly adapting to being tired and sore and run down. And I just don't think uh, – when I think of high performance, I don't think of uh, of tough guys trudging around on the field. Uh, when I think of high performance, I think of high speed and high explosion. And, uh, yeah, that's maybe that's just me. But uh, but that's what I see as high performance.
0: And, you know, I, I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head there with regard to rugby because – what you see from the various studies as as guys progress through the system, 16, 18, 20, and so on, into into senior rugby, the strength numbers go way up, the body weight goes way up, and the speed doesn't change. And people always use it as a get-out in rugby they say, oh, but the momentum goes up. Well, increasing speed would probably help momentum as well.
1: <laughs> For sure. And I'd be shocked. uh. I'm shocked at how many people make statements about, you know, for example, how uh, their speed stays the same or doesn't go up and things like that. I, I hear a lot of weight room people talking about speed increases and things who never test speed. They're afraid of testing it because they're when they sprint, their guys get hurt. And I totally think that that uh, that a lot of people get hurt because they're in the weight room too much. They develop uh, uh, an unbalanced type of strength in the weight room, an artificial type of strength, and and my my experience with kids is that if they spend too much time in the weight room, their speed does not stay the same. They get slower. If they gain weight, it's almost the only kids I've ever seen put on 20 to 30 pounds in a year and stay as fast as they were, were kids that were doing steroids. Um, it's, otherwise, it's really, really hard to produce. Uh, to, it's easy to put on weight. It's really hard to improve your vertical force when you're sprinting. So, uh, yeah, it's just, I just see a lot of people that get slower.
0: So you mentioned in, in your articles on uh, track football consortium that you basically did not get your guys to lift for football. Is is that one hundred percent true, or is it like minimal lifting? Or can can you go into the detail about that? Because I think from from my position as as a ropey strength and conditioning coach, you'd you'd be out the door doing that. So I'm just trying to see how much how much leeway there is to that to that statement.
1: Yeah, I, I think that. Yeah, uh, I think sometimes I'm I'm misinterpreted um, on that stuff. I I truly believe that if if I took over. Uh, uh, a a, a big-time football program, we would absolutely lift. There's no question. Sure. But our lift, our lifting would be in an auxiliary way. I, I definitely believe that that we would lift in a focused, intense way. Less is more. Uh, we would never lift till failure. We would always go bouncing out of the weight room instead of you know, not being able to touch your, the top of your head because your arms are so thick and your legs, you hardly can sit down because you're so sore. That would never happen in a program that I would run. Uh, that, that the weight room would be an auxiliary system and and, uh, and that's fine. However, I also want to really say that for anyone to think that the weight room is the only place to get strong is, is wrong itself. Uh, I tell people all the time, that the uh, every high school team I've ever seen, uh, high school football team, spend nine weeks lifting over the summer, I see less change in those kids in those nine weeks than I do in Marines that go away to boot camp for nine weeks. Well, the difference is one group's lifting weights and another group's not. But those Marines are getting extremely strong, and and they're getting strong with body weight exercises and and doing things that. They don't do in a weight room. So uh, I do have some of my sprinters who are not football players. All my football players lift, of course. But um, some of my sprinters who do not play football don't spend much time in the weight room at all. But yet people, when they see my sprinters, they'll say, gee, what position does he play on the football team? And I think that's because sprinting in and of itself is an incredible sprint, uh, incredible Uh, uh, strength exercise something that people working in a weight room just do not want to uh, do don't they don't want to admit that or maybe they don't know that but with my experience great sprinters are all really strong and I would think that you could take a sprinter that was really fast who had never been in the weight room and within a couple weeks they would be an outstanding (laughs) weightlifter. but on the flip side of that
0: Never the other way around.
1: <laughs> there you go. There you go. So, uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing. I don't I don't think anybody has the real answers to it, but I agree with you that a football coach who uh, boycotted the weight room would not coach for long. Somebody, <laughs> they'd get rid of him.
0: Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned Marines there and military-style workouts you, you've written uh, about before. Uh, my belief is that not that, that mental toughness can't be trained but what what sport coaches believe develops mental toughness just creates tired athletes uh, i've yet to see you know a pussy turn into a world beater just because we did shuttles so i totally agree what does build mental toughness
1: well first of all i think mental toughness is every bit as genetic as jumping ability and speed and intelligence and the ability to play the piano uh, mental toughness uh, is born in some kids and is not born in some kids. Every, every really mentally tough football player I have ever coached was mentally tough from the first day I met him. Just like every elite sprinter I've ever coached was an elite sprinter before I ever met him. Now, he may, he may not have ever sprinted before, but on the first day he sprinted, I was like, wow, that guy's fast. So if you accept that mental toughness is somewhat genetic or maybe a lot genetic, and the fact that you cannot take, as you said, a pussy and turn him into a, uh, a barbarian or something, that is very, very true. You cannot do that. It's it's. Uh, uh, and I agree that, that most of the things that coaches try to do to get kids tough, whether it's verbal abuse, physical abuse, um, those things just don't work. And so instead of worrying about, trying to get kids uh, to be tough enough to survive storming Iwo Jima uh... maybe you need to get kids well enough skilled and fast enough and uh... and and mentally uh... smart enough to win games you know i, I think you know we're, we're not trying to uh, uh... train a military force here we're trying to win rugby games or football games or basketball games whatever
0: and you know it seems to me as well that no one questions your mental toughness when you win. So what is probably a gap physically, tactically, technically often may be perceived as a gap in mental toughness, whereas, you know, if you're just better in every regard, nobody's questioning your mental toughness.
1: That's exactly right. And it's just like when people, uh, when athletes are smooth, when, when, they, when they make it look easy, um, boy, when you win... They're praised for that. When they lose, those athletes that make it look easy are loafers. And and you can't have it both ways. I, I think that uh, uh, we were talking before we went live here that, that there are so many football coaches in, in this country where it's really become a religion, uh, a patriotic, militaristic type of thing. Uh, obviously, very testosterone driven all that. Where where every single time a football coach loses his default switch is we're going to practice twice as long. I'm going to crush these guys. We are going to, we are going to work until these guys have never seen the type of work that we're going to do next week. It's always that is the default thing. Instead of saying, maybe we need to practice smarter. Or like you said, maybe we were outmanned at every position. And we need to keep our kids' spirits high and put this game behind us and go out and win the next one. You know, I, I wish more coaches were like that, but instead football is just such an echo chamber of tough guys uh, wanting to outwork everybody else. And they end up, like you say, with, with tired athletes.
0: So one, one question I would have for you on that is belief is huge you know i uh I've, I've had conversations before with guys where they said because we were lifting sub maximally and fast avoiding failure massive emphasis on on sprinting i'd say i feel weak i'm not physical i'm not tough i said okay if you, if you really don't believe me let's go down to the weight room now and you can test you can work up to a three rep max and he worked up to a lifetime personal best so i said immediately afterwards um do, do you believe me now? And he said, yes, I believe you. I said, all right, are we going to stick with what we're doing now? He said, no, no, I want to lift heavy all the time. So <laughs> with with that belief being so important and the confidence that they draw from certain activities, how do you compromise between the two, between what you know is, is best and what they believe works? Cause I, 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 in my mind, I picture it like a Venn diagram and it's that zone in the middle that we're trying to, to trying to occupy as coaches. If we want to be productive and, and have long tenures.
1: I, I think that's a, uh... A fascinating question. I, 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 I personally think the brain is so strong, and the brain always wins. That if you if you have a kid that wants to train wrong, uh, and believes in training wrong, uh, it's you're better off letting him train wrong, than to make him train your way, the right way. Uh, I think all you can do sometimes is is do your best sales job like you did, you can, you can show the kid things, but if, if, if that kid needs to lift an hour and a half a day to feel like a man, maybe that's what he needs to do. I don't understand that. Uh, I I would think that, uh, I, I I don't ever have that anymore because my guys, uh, know my reputation as a sprint coach and, and they understand that people in my program get better and I document it. And they get better week by week, year by year, uh, all those things. And so they never question the fact that we aren't running enough. No one no one, for me in the last 13 years has come up to me and said, well, Coach, we need to do more mileage uh, work. We need to get out on the road some. Or, hey, Coach, we need to do those 10. I hear some teams do 10 200s in practice. We need to do 10 200s. No one ever talks like that to me anymore. Now, there are some coaches that I have to convince otherwise, but none of my athletes do. But, uh, but you're right. It, if you can't sell your program, then it's, it's going to be very difficult to win.
0: Now, touching on some of the more stuff you talked about in, I think it was your article was called New School Ideas for Old School Coaches, you, you talked about having different focus days within sport practice. So you, you have a sprint day where every single rep is high speed, Uh, You maybe have a a skill day where it's it's walkthroughs and very organisational. And then you have maybe another day where reps are done sub-maximally. My question to you is, in football, I think the way that the, the time motion data is set up, it lends itself very, very well to that. My question is, how applicable do you think that is to a rugby setup, where our worst case scenario is that the ball may be in play for four minutes and it's going to be out of play for only 40 seconds, so to my mind the the aerobic and the glycolytic component of the sport is is far higher so I'm just trying to in my head marry up what you're talking about there but make it work in a rugby setting
1: well that's that's I, I think that you're onto something there and I've been asked about putting my training ideas into basketball and I think basketball is uh, oftentimes in basketball play may go on for 30 consecutive seconds but it's nowhere near the four minutes you talk about so much different than American football where uh, a three-hour and 12-minute game has 11 minutes of football in it. 11 minutes of football in a three-hour and 12-minute game. We're,
0: we're so, 50 minutes, 40 to 50 minutes in an 80-minute in
1: game. Okay. So so yours is a lot different. And, and And just the way my mind thinks is that, yes, I think that pure speed – And pure explosion is universally good and needs to be worked on. And you can only work on that once or twice a week. And you can only work on that when you are fresh. I I would still have days where, where that was really the focus. But I would also have days where I don't think if sometimes you have to play a four-minute stretch and play pretty hard during a four-minute stretch, I don't think you have to practice four-minute stretches. Yeah. But I think you have to practice two-minute stretches, played real hard. Um, yeah. I And, you know, it's just it's, – it's the old thing that, uh, you know, like I said in my article, that if an offensive tackle in football plays 65 offensive plays – why, why do you require him to go hard 200 times in a practice? He only has to do 65 plays in a football game. Well, I, I think that what I would try to do to a rugby – I know nothing about rugby. But what I would try to do, just based on what you described, is is to learn how to play faster and harder than normal for half of that four-minute period. Yeah. And then take a big break, full recovery, and come do it again.
0: That's the, that's the way I've been leaning towards that. Um, you know, This, this preseason, obviously, uh, I've got that desire from, from players and coaches to go into that glycolytic zone. But for a good month, we were doing glycolytic work, so 30 seconds to, to 60 seconds. But it was with yep. full recoveries. So they had yep. to do three to four minutes of low-intensity skill work in between those reps. So the, the output was higher and yeah. you know we we have gps here and i can tell you when we do go into that right we're going to play for 4 minutes or we're going to stretch and push the envelope they they feel tired but the numbers tell a very different story and you know i've i've put on my instagram before that intensity has a lot more to do with the you know the number on the tape measure the number on the clock than it does about how you feel and what i've noticed is if if we do something like an intensive tempo workout the the feeling is close if not the same but the outputs are far higher
1: yeah i I, I think that would work I'm, i'm my mind went right to when you said that uh your speed can still be high even though you feel tired uh i i go right back to the training for a 400 meter runner uh now he's gonna have to run 50 seconds let's say real real fast like sprint for 50 seconds well the old school way of doing that is to work with kids at sprinting for 60 seconds sometimes, sometimes for 40. Well, we never sprint more ever, 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 ever. We don't ever sprint more than 25 seconds at a time, ever. You do not have to sprint 50 seconds to learn how to sprint 50 seconds. You can, you can cut that in half. And I say the same thing to my 400 guys, that everybody is tired at the end of the 400 meters. Everyone, whether you've trained with endurance, whether you've trained glycolytic, which we call lactate, or if you've trained anaerobic and and alactic, or not anaerobic, but alactic anaerobic, that everybody's going to be tired in the last ten to fifteen seconds of the four hundred meters. But those guys that are real fast, they've been trained fast. My money's on them uh, because they are running it. Their mechanics are such that they're used to running fast. And they may feel like crap, but they still finish the race pretty well.
0: You mentioned earlier with your, your track guys, you're, you're never touching that glycolytic lactate zone in off-season or preseason. Would you take the same approach to, to a football team? Because I can tell you with, with our rugby guys, if, if I was in complete control, it would probably be about two to three weeks at the end of preseason.
1: Yes, um, I I would stay focused on explosive speed, and and train that component until I just believe that you can really hold off on that glycolytic lactate type stuff um, that you don't you don't have to start doing that during you know the off season because what that will do is that will actually start to subtract from pure speed and from max explosion. And so you just want to keep training the nervous system to be able to go those high speeds. And and then once you get into the season, what I have found is that if you do smart, low volume glycolytic work, you can can change kids. Uh, My kids are changed after one good lactate workout. One good lactate workout, they will come back, and, and do the next lactate workout better, measurably better, and feel better afterwards. They are literally, their body's chemistry can change a great deal quickly with that glycolytic lactate work. And so, yeah, I would do the same thing as you're doing. I, I would wait until uh, the first game was, you know, like three or four weeks out, and and. And once a week, not more than once a week, but once a week we would have – we would go full intensity for an uh, extended amount of times.
0: And once you get into the season, you know, my my belief is like once you get to the season, you're trying to train the stuff that the game doesn't stimulate in the time that you have. You can make an argument that, that that glycolytic component is going to be covered by the game itself. Would you actually then pull back from doing that in season and concentrate on the stuff above and below the speed of the game?
1: Yes, I, um, what I say is during our actual busy time during the middle of our track season, that my number one concern with sprinters is, is keeping them healthy and mentally fresh and neurologically sharp. And, and so the most important workout during the season is actually a nap. It's actually leisure. And so so we, the maximum number of glycolytic days, once again, you know, for track guys that listen to me, I, glycolytic and lactate, same thing. Uh, I would never go more than two days a week where we go uh, lactate, where we're producing lactate poison in our blood. And, and, of course, the game would be one of them. If we have two track meets, that's, we don't do any lactate work in practice, Period. And then the other thing is I, I believe that that you should not go at full speed, full sprint speed. I'm talking about getting your body up to 10 meters a second. And, of course, you you and I both know it takes, what, 20, 30 meters before your body is, is traveling that fast. Uh, that you should never sprint at full speed more than two or three times a week. So the rest of the time has to be skill work. And there's nothing that – uh, there's no higher priority, in my opinion, than to have healthy, happy, uh, uh, energetic players on game day.
0: Indeed, with, with with the skill work on the low days, is this governed largely by RPE, or you know the stopwatch, or is it just is it just the, the general look and feel of every rep should be crisp, fresh, not fatigued.
1: Um, and I, I don't know if I, I, I know what you're asking me exactly. Are you talking about like on a sprint day? In, oh, in part of me on, on
0: a on a low day. So because, low day. Okay. Uh, you know, I think it's like you, you, you want to train as hard as possible, as often as possible, and like you say, as fresh as possible. A, a low day should never impact a high day, and so on.
1: Sure. Um, my my plan or my ideas in football, uh, which would be the same as it is in rugby or basketball or anything else, is like you say. You never, want, you never want today to affect tomorrow. Uh, if it does, then your volume is too high. And what I would do, and some people are confused, like what do you mean by sprint days? Is that like max effort days? No, I think every day is a max effort day. A sprint day to me is a day where your guys that run will get up to top speed 10 12 15 times during a practice literally get up to top speed i mean if, if you're a ferrari you're getting up to 200 miles an hour i mean you are you are getting that top speed going and that's a couple times a week now on the non sprint days in a football sense you would the quarterback hands off to the running back and the running back hits the hole as fast as he can and starts to de-sell immediately which would mean that he never got he never got to full speed. He went first gear, second gear, almost a third gear, and that was it. So you're practicing like the uh, timing of a play, the meshing of the, uh, of the handoff and all that kind of thing. So, so skill work works really good in those non-sprint days and, and short bursts of energy. Uh, you're just not really cranking it up to your top speed. It does not mean you're walking through practice, though. It's still a max effort day. There was a football coach I talked to on the phone. I've had the opportunity to talk to probably about 50 of them since I wrote those three articles recently. And and he said, now explain what a, a non-sprint day would look like. And I said, well, nobody ever gets to top speed. Uh, nobody ever takes off and goes 30, 40 yards and, and, and hits that top speed. You're doing everything. Uh, within a ten fifteen yard, he goes. He goes. Gee, that's the way all of our practices look. And so I was like, never
0: actually getting up to the, the top, the intensity that's going to develop those outputs.
1: Exactly. And and that was his epiphany moment where he said, we need to start having sprint days because he he thought that my non sprint days were walkthroughs, and that's not really what I'm talking about. They can be. They can be walkthroughs. They can be skill days. They can be days where you meet in a classroom and talk about things. Um, The big thing is that it's a recovery day in a a way that you're really careful because you're trying to build that momentum for the second day so you really get up to top speeds.
0: So second day of the week is key for you? Yes. I'd agree. What about uh, fourth day? Because then then you start to have to balance the, the desire to train but also the potential impact on the forthcoming game.
1: Right, and, and I think that my overriding thought as we get closer and closer to the game would be that thou shalt not do any harm, you know, just like the first thing that a doctor says on the Hippocratic Oath, and and that means that you have got to err on the side of less, um, especially as you get closer and closer to the game because everything is about that outcome. You're, you know You are not there for the process of practicing. You are there to excel at a high performance way in the game. So everything that you're doing as you get closer to the game, you've got to make sure that you're walking off the practice field thinking, gee, we didn't we didn't go very long. Gee, we didn't. My guys don't seem very tired. And it's kind of like every bone in your body is screaming, we should have done more, we should have done more. But that's exactly what you have to do as a coach. Because the key is to do less and to make sure you are doing no harm. You're going to have fewer injuries. Your your guys will be mentally looking forward to the game much more. They won't have those dead eyes come game time. And I just think that's where it's at.
0: Who would you say have been some of your biggest influences as a coach that you could direct other people to?
1: Uh, oh, to direct other people? Obviously my dad was, but... Uh, but but he's 80 now and he's out of the business. Uh, Chris Corfis is absolutely um, I know he's my partner and we do the track football consortium together. And of course he is the uh, uh, he introduced me to Douglas Heel. I wrote eight articles about Douglas and uh, yeah, Douglas was amazing. But be activated was kind of a thing that um, that that was largely a medical type thing uh, uh, where chiropractors and people like that came to learn ways to treat people and it was actually hijacked by Chris Corfist as a performance based thing and so now there, uh, Be Activated in the United States is uh, led by Corfist and, and it's all performance based and uh, the people who he teaches are coaches and athletes uh, so the the fact that he he is just an amazing mad scientist when it comes to RPR, and then also his his evolution as a, of a coach. Uh, every week he's finding new and fascinating things to do with athletes, and it seems like everything he does with them works. So I would say Chris Corfus is absolutely the guy uh, uh, that that is the guy that's probably influenced me the most. I talked back to Paul Souza, who uh, who really set me on the path of less is more and and developing sprint ability. And he talked a lot about lactate and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, he's he's out of the business. He's a singer and a rock man now, so uh, so you can't really contact him. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, so you know, it's weird when I think back uh, of my. Uh, growth as, as, a coach, I kind of stumbled into some ideas. Uh, I was never formally, uh, I was never trained as a coach. Uh, I, I just kind of fell into certain ideas I tried to make. Uh, it's kind of cool when you, when I look back that, that I made all my changes in my program 19 years ago and everything was about trying to make the experience a great one for kids that no one on my track team, would say the way I say now that when I look back to middle school, high school, college, track and field, I hated it. My kids will never say that. And so I changed the experience and I just got lucky that by changing the experience, I stumbled onto some things that really, really work. And so that's that's a cool thing. But yeah, for those people out there, you know, you you've got to, you know, you gotta visit Chris Corfus basement sometime. And just sit and watch him work with kids. It's it's an amazing thing.
0: So, you've been coaching all this time now. Is it thirty-seven years? Yeah. What What are you learning about, and what are you pushing forward on?
1: Uh, well, the RPR thing is is huge. I I, uh, I I guess I've been doing it for three three years now with my guys, and and I'm, I'm telling you, my guys would not be as fast without it. I mean, it is an absolute performance um, a game changer. And then, when you throw in the fact that that Chris and I, in our time with RPR, we have never had a kid that has been uh, that has been on the table and gone through RPR ever uh, pull a hamstring ever. So we, we it, it's basically gone. Uh, uh, that. 10 minutes on the table, uh, flexibility improves by 25%. Um, people mentally are rebooted. Uh, they, Everybody, when they get off the table, they say, I feel light. I feel light. I feel like I want to run. And, you know, if you can take a kid that's been sitting in a classroom for seven hours all day, and, and he's at a, a track meet, and it's cold and, and windy and all that, and, and you get him on the table and when he gets off, he's like bouncing and saying, I'm ready to go. Um, you say, gee, you know, what, what a, what an incredible thing this RPR is. So that's one thing I'm really pushing on. Uh, I also, uh, I'm right now, I told you, you know, I, I'm actually reading, uh, somebody sent me a, a PDF of, of, Charlie Francis and, and I, I'm going to go through that whole thing. And, and after about 15 pages, I can tell that uh, I'm going to write something about him. Because there's so many things that I think he stumbled on that I have stumbled on as well. And I stumbled on without ever reading his stuff. And it's kind of cool that people have always told me that my, that my ideas remind them of Charlie Francis. And I'm like, I have no idea what Charlie's ideas are. And so so I'm still reading. Um, I, I, I love to write. So... The whole idea with writing, you know, I'm sure you understand this, that when you write, you learn things and you study things. And so so I'm probably more motivated right now as a coach than I've ever been.
0: That's awesome, man. Where, where, can, uh, where can people find you and your articles now?
1: Uh, gee, they've been all over the place. Uh, I, I wrote for our coaches association a place called ITCA, dot com. Uh, I have about 80 articles on that. I have about 15 or 20 on Freelap. Uh, I think that's all been switched over to Simply Faster. I have several articles at Simply Faster. But the place where we're putting all of our articles now is our website, which is uh, uh, trackfootballconsortium.com. I know it's a lot of letters, trackfootballconsortium.com. And so people can find the stuff there. I have a uh, I'm not on Facebook, but I have a good Twitter presence. You can find me at PNTrack, like Plainfield North, at PNTrack. And uh, and my email address is out there. I answer emails all the time. And, uh, yeah, so you can find me that way.
0: This has been awesome, Tony. Thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you, Kier. It's been great.
0: Much appreciated.